I'm sure that the, after the last two days, some of you have wondered if I would ever get to the New Testament. I do have a whole Bible with 66 books. And this morning, I'd like to draw your attention to the climactic biblical revelation, the book of Revelation, and a climactic scene. Stand with me as we read Revelation 5. I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a book written inside and on the back, sealed up with seven seals. And I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the book and to break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the book or to look into it. Then I began to weep greatly because no one was found worthy to open the book or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, Stop weeping. Look, the lion that is from the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has overcome so, so as to open the book and its seven seals. And I saw between the throne with the four living creatures and the, the elders of the Lamb standing as if slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he came and took the book out of the right hand of him who sat on the throne. And when he had taken the book, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the Lamb, each one holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the book and break its seals, for you were slain, and you have purchased for God with your blood people from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom and priests to our God, and they will reign upon the earth. Then I looked, and I heard the voice of many angels around the throne, and the living creatures and the elders, and the number of them was myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, all saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And every creature that is in heaven and on the earth and under the earth and on the sea and all the things in them I heard saying, to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, be blessing and honor and glory and dominion forever and ever. And the four living creatures kept saying, Amen, Amen. Amen. And the elders fell down and worshiped. Oh, Lord, help us to worship. Give us a vision of your glory and your grace 
in Jesus Christ. We ask in his blessed name, amen. Be seated, please. What a passage. It makes you want to keep reading. The book of Revelation was written to be heard the whole thing in one sitting or standing. Maybe one day we can do that. But I'd like to look at this text and see as a climax to our conversations here what we might learn about worship. You know, the New Testament, I've mentioned this before, the New Testament has relatively little to say about what we ought to do in church. It has brief summary statements and acts to what they did, but it never prescribes what we should do here. And here, finally, in the last book of the Bible, we find worship at worship. The only problem is this is heavenly worship. This is not earthly worship. This is the kind of worship for which we are all looking one of these days with all the people from every tribe and every nation. We will be gathered around the throne blessing the Lamb. There are lots of lessons on worship in this passage that we could review for us. But I'd like to highlight three, and I'm going to spend 90% of my time on one. So we'll start there. Lesson number one in worship. True worship focuses on Christ. Did you see that? When we gather to worship, we are responding to God's invitation to an audience with him. Oh, this is not a private audience. Neither you nor I has a monopoly on the Lord's attention. There are lots of people gathered here. This is a scene with thousands and myriads of people in Revelation 4. The Lord is the center of attention, surrounded by 24 elders dressed in white robes, sitting on thrones of their own with seven fiery lamps representing the seven spirits of God. Issuing from his throne, the Lord's throne, we observe flashes of lightning and accompanying peals of thunder. The throne itself sits on a platform of crystal and is guarded by four cherubim who cry out antiphonally and unceasingly, Kadosh, 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 holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And meanwhile, the 24 elders fall down before the one on the throne, give up their crowns, and exclaim, Worthy are you, our Lord and our God, to receive adoration. That's chapter 4. In chapter 5, the attention shifts from the one on the throne to another figure. Our eyes are focused on a scroll in his hand inscribed with a text front and back. John himself is so disturbed that nobody has the authority to break the seals on this scroll that he breaks down and weeps. 
he gets rather emotional about the problem until finally somebody is introduced who is worthy to open the scroll. This morning, I'd like to focus our attention on that person. Who is this? Why is he worthy to break the seals? Who, let's ask the, question, the first question then. Who is this one who breaks the seal? Did you notice how he is introduced? First, he's got a few special titles. He is the Lion of Judah. This title has a long history in Israelite tradition. It comes, in fact, from the oldest explicitly messianic text in the Bible, Genesis 49, 9. Judah is a lion's whelp. From a prey, my son, you have gone up. He crouches down. He crouches out like a lion, like a lioness who dares rouse him. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until tribute comes to him and the obedience of the peoples is his. This messianic interpretation is hinted at as early as Ezekiel in chapter 21, verses 27. But by the time we get to the intertestamental period and into the New Testament, it is a well-established messianic title of this great son of David who will rule, rule for God, Lion of Judah. Second, he is the root of David. The expression here, the root of Jesse, actually, who is the father of Jesse, comes from Isaiah 11.1. 1. A shoot shall come up from the root of Jesse. That text looks forward, lay long, forward longingly for an ideal king from the line of David who will judge the world with righteousness and usher in an era of Peace. These are the titles borne by this person who is worthy to break the seals, the Lion of Judah and the Root of Jesse. But when John looks up to see who this Lion of Judah is and this Root of Jesse, he sees not a lion or a king with a crown but a lamb. Instead of a symbol of power and might, you have a lamb. Instead of the power and might with which you'd expect him to crush the enemies of the kingdom of light, instead of a Messiah who would throw off the Roman yokes, he sees a lamb. And of course, those of us who have read the Bible forward we know where this metaphor comes from. This is Isaiah 53. Like a lamb led to the slaughter, like a sheep before its shearers is silent, so he did not open up his mouth. It's almost oxymoronic. But in this book, the lamb, who is identified as a lamb 28 times, that's more than once every chapter, 
He is generally portrayed, though, not as a passive and innocent victim of violence, but as enthroned with God and destined as a lamb to be victorious over all the forces of darkness and evil. This broken and bruised lamb has seven horns and seven eyes. Try and visualize. That's like scary, isn't it? It's like a Disney production. But these are symbolic of his complete power and complete omniscience. Only this lamb is worthy to break the seals and usher in the furious judgments represented in the scroll that is opened to be opened up in the rest of the book. Who is this one? Lion of Judah, root of David, the Lamb. But why is he worthy to break the seals? What are his credentials? We might propose that this person is worthy to break the seals because he has the right titles. He's the Messiah. Or he's gained the right because of achievements. He's established himself as victor, verse 5. Or because of his rank in the heavenly court. Obviously, he's higher in authority than the elders and the other creatures. They're all bowing to him. Or because of his spiritual gifts, his special endowments, irresistible power, symbolized by horns and omniscient visions, symbolized by the seven eyes. Surely these qualities set him apart from all other creatures and make him worthy to open the scroll. But when the cherubim and the 24 elders begin to sing, did you notice? They don't celebrate the Lamb's external qualifications, his formal credentials, his military achievements, even his standing before God or his spiritual gifts. Look at verse 9. According to this verse, you are worthy to take the scroll and to open the seals because. For. And now he gives the reason. The basis of his worthiness is formally introduced. And it's followed by a threefold reason. Why is the Lamb worthy to be open, to open the seals? One, there's a historical fact. He was slain. Doesn't make sense to us. That makes him worthy. I would say that disqualifies him. But no, he was slain. Second, there's the interpretation of the fact. For God, he purchased the saints from every tribe and nation. And third, there is the result of this fact. These he has constituted a kingdom of priests to serve God and to reign on earth. Three reasons why he's worthy to open the seals. First, the lamb is worthy to open the seals because he was slain. This is obviously the controlling factor in the whole thing. Three times this historical fact is mentioned. Verse 6, the lamb stands between the elders as one slain. Verse 9, for he was slain. Verse 12, he was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. He was slain. But those of you who are grammarians, did you notice the passive? 
By whom? Well, we know he was slain by, condemned by the Jewish leaders, by Pontius Pilate, and then ultimately the Roman soldiers crucified him. But the messianic treatment of this passage drives us back to Isaiah 53, which presents him as a passive and submissive lamb led to slaughter. And in 53 verse 10, we have the shocking fact. But it was, was the will of the Lord to crush him. Really, he was slain. Must be taken as a divine passive. God willed the death of Jesus. That goes down hard these days. What kind of God would do that to his son? But of course, it declares what sort of passion there is in the heart of God to redeem not only humanity, but the cosmos. So that when on the cross Jesus cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? We know. He was slain, which leads us to the second reason. He's worthy to open the seals because with his death, he purchased for God people from every tribe and nation. Does this not excite you? This is why he was slain, to accomplish that great redemptive act calling us to himself and calling us to God, redeeming us from the power of sin. You shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people, not from Pharaoh or the Romans, but from a far greater power, the power of sin. That's why he's worthy. Third, the lamb is worthy to open the seals because he is, it is through him that the redeemed have not only been redeemed, but they've been constituted the kingdom and priests to God, and because of him they shall reign on the earth. Did you know that this is why we were created? You know, we have the sense with our anthropocentric view of the world, many of us have the sense that the world was created for us. And so we exploit and abuse and we say, this world is not my home, I'm just a passing through, my treasures I laid up somewhere beyond the blue, so I can treat this world any way I want. I've got news for you. When God put us in the garden of Eden, he put us there to govern it for him. Genesis 2.15, serve and keep the garden. Now, when you have a verb like serve, who's the boss? The garden. 
That's why we were created. God is most glorified in our lives when we govern the world rightly for him as he would were he personally, physically present. He has constituted us a kingdom and priests to God because finally the world will be governed rightly by the redeemed. After long discussion about who alone is worthy to break the seals, we finally have it. This is the mission. God calling us to be his priests, to govern the world for him. Principle number one, true worship focuses on Christ. This is the one we worship. Principle number two, true worship begins on our knees. Did you see that? We sing a lot about this these days, don't we? You know the chorus. We bow down and we worship the Lord. We bow down and we worship the Lord. We bow down and we worship the Lord. We worship you, Lord, and bow down. No, we don't. I was so pleased this morning before we came here in the pastor's office. We knelt to pray. That is so appropriate. What does this mean? Actually, for those of you who were with us the last few days, you remember that both the Hebrew word hishtachawa, translated worship in our English translations, and the Greek word proskuneo, translated as worship in our English translations, both words mean literally to fall down on your face physically before a superior, in submission and homage. We never do that these days, do we? Very rarely. When I was growing up, we would kneel at my mother's knees as she taught us to pray. And in our house, I'm number nine of 15 children, we had three bedrooms upstairs for the kids. My one sister had one, and the rest of us boys had to share the other two bedrooms. And it was a great day when you would move from kids' ward to men's ward. But we slept three in a bed, and my grandkids say, or my kids say, yeah, and you went barefoot to school in winter, uphill both ways, all kinds of other stories that we tell. But every night before we went to bed, we would read a scripture in each of the two wards, and then we'd kneel to pray. Always oldest to youngest. I don't know, a very patrocentric world. And there were times when by the time we got to the youngest guy, he was fast asleep. <laughs> and, and we would take bets on how long he would be there snoring, and we'd be under the blankets, and all of a sudden he'd wake up. Oops. But we knelt to pray. At midweek prayer meeting in those days, we always knelt to pray. We don't do that much these days. In fact, it feels odd. It feels distracting. But other people do. 
They know what this means. Look at the Muslims. They know what this means. The world knows what this means. But no, we're such an arrogant lot. We don't have to do this anymore. And actually, in our culture, we have very few symbols of submission and homage. We're all equal. There are no authorities. Nobody's over us. I have as much right to talk as you. Not so here. When we're in front of somebody who is greater than we are, we fall down in submission and homage. What's a sweet, sweet image this is. We fall down and we worship the Lord. We give a lot of lip service to that, but we don't actually do much of it. Oh, we say, I'm bowing in my heart. Or we say, bow your heads. But do you know why we're bowing our heads? Has anybody ever explained? Well, that's, that's in microcosm what the whole body should be doing. We say, bow your heads and close your eyes. Why do we close our eyes when we pray? Does anybody in the Bible ever close their eyes when they pray? But we do for some reason. Some of the things we do in worship, we've just made up. Some of the things come from the Bible. True worship begins on our knees. When that leper who had been healed by Jesus, the one, wasn't he a Samaritan? There were 10 lepers who were healed. Who's the only guy that came back? When he came to Jesus, he fell down on his face and he worshiped. That's a spontaneous gesture of, I am not worthy. We are not worthy. But some of us come to church, here I am, Lord, aren't you lucky? I could be out golfing today. It's a wonderful day. In fact, I heard there's a football game going on right now in London, England, isn't there? Another distraction to keep us away from church. But I'm, I'm pious. I went to church. I didn't stay home to watch that football game. True worship begins on our knees. Third, true worship involves enthusiastic songs of praise. Martin Luther says, if you won't sing, I won't believe you're a Christian. And he was right. But I'm concerned that these days we're learning, we're losing the ability to sing. We don't sing much anymore. And if we sing, it is the world songs. I mean, we've got our podcasts, and, and when we go for a walk, when I go for a walk, I went for a five-mile walk yesterday. That was so sweet along the Indian Trail here. I mean, what a, what a sweet place to walk. I refuse to listen to music when I'm walking because that's why I'm walking. To get away from the din and the noise. Give me some quiet time, finally. I'm an introvert and I treasure that time. But did you notice some things about this songs? These people, these creatures are singing. First, it's a new song. Well, for whom it was new, the text doesn't say, but one thing I, you can be sure, it was not like the song they used to sing before they were redeemed. Second, 
The song is focused on the Lamb, unlike so many of our songs which simply declare how much we love God or what we are doing for God. This song is about what God has done for us. My song shall be of Jesus his mercy crowns my days. That Keith Getty piece that we sang, brilliant piece, so right. He fills my cup with gladness and tunes my heart to praise. My song shall be of Jesus, the precious Lamb of God, who gave himself my ransom and bought me with his blood. Let's stop singing about ourselves. I love you, Lord, and I lift my voice. That's idolatry. We should be singing, You love me, Lord, so I lift my voice. Our song must be not of our love for him, not of our worship, but of his great love for us. Third, the song is instructive. It told a story. It declared profound theology. Worthy is the lamb to break the seals because he was slain and he purchased for God with his blood people from every tribe and nation. He has made them into a kingdom of priests and they all reign with him. What a story. And how different from what my mentor used to call the vain Gentile repetitions of many of our songs. It's just empty sound bites in a post-literate, post-biblically literate world. You can give those sound bites any meaning you want. No, this one tells a story. It's much more than just mood music. It's revelation. In the song, you're introduced to the Lord. Fourth, it's a congregational song. Did you notice everybody here is singing? There are no professionals. It's not just the people on the stage. They help us. But ultimately, the... the, 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 the the success of our worship is not determined by what happens up here. It's by what happens down there. Singing. All of us singing. This is what unites. We sing to one another in praise of God. It's a congregational song. True worship focuses on Christ begins on our knees, involves enthusiastic songs of praise, and finally involves prayer. This is the ultimate act of worship. If true worship is human acts of reverence and submission in response to his revelation of himself and in accordance with his will, surely prayer is the supreme act of submission. In prayer... I mean, there are lots of prayers, all kinds of prayers, thanksgiving, supplication, intercession, simple praise, whatever, lots of kinds of prayers. But in prayer, we declare to God, ultimately, our absolute dependence on Him. I am not worthy. It's interesting that in our churches, we fight about what kind of music to have. 
Rarely do we fight about how we should pray. It's probably because we've de-emphasized that most fundamental exercise. And we forget that the Psalter, the Psalms, were prayers long before they were songs, not long before they were put to music. These are expressions of devotion and piety. Here, you've got prayer, people praying with the, they, they, they have bowls of incense which represent the prayers of the saints. If we didn't have that little clause in there, I wouldn't know that that's what they were doing. But the text tells us they're praying. What a privilege it is to pray. The Israelites were uniquely privileged. Deuteronomy 4, verse 7 to 8. What great nation is there that has a God so near whenever we call upon him? And who has revealed his will such righteous laws as we have. You see, have you ever noticed in pagan images of God what big ears they always have? Because people are desperate for gods who will hear them. It's like the preacher has in his notes, weak point, shout loud. God has no ears, but he hears. He has no mouth, but he speaks. He has no eyes, but he sees. This is what makes him worthy of worship. Our time is more than gone, and I must bring these rambling thoughts to a close. You know, we may discuss the forms of worship and debate them and fight about them until the cows come home, as we used to say in northern Saskatchewan. But unless and until we are overwhelmed by the awesome glory and majesty and grace and mercy of the one we worship, all discussions about what true worship looks like are beside the point. We don't need lectures on how to worship. We need a vision of the risen Christ. And when we see him, we will worship. This morning, I ask a simple question. Have you seen him? In all his glory, the lion of Judah, the seed of Jesse, the seed root of, a, uh, of David, the lamb, slain for you that you might be a part of this vast host one day, bowing before the throne and praising him. What a gospel. What a God. Hallelujah. What a Savior. To him be all the praise and glory. Amen.